0: Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you with this text in front of us, I pray, Lord, that you would Cause us to feel what the psalmist said when he said, what shall I render to you for all your goodness and love? And Lord, we pray that you would enable us to lift up the cup of salvation and drink deeply from it and live in your steadfast love day and night. Lord, I pray that you would cause our hearts to be stunned and humbled and amazed that we get to experience you in this word. That we have the privilege of thinking on you. Lord, you have been better to us than we can begin to articulate. It's so good of you to... Reveal Yourself in this way. And so we praise You and we thank You and we pray that You would cause our gratitude and our wonder and our love for You to well up and overflow as a result of our time in Your Word together. We pray, Lord, that You would do this for Your glory in Christ. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 1. And as you turn there, I want to assert that there is nothing like the book of Genesis. And there is nothing like the Torah, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, in all of the world's literature. Whether we're talking about religious literature or any other kind of literature, there is nothing else like this. There is nothing that starts at the beginning and accounts for everything as it traces the unfolding work of the living and true God. Nothing compares with this. There are some that have tried, but they don't even come close. They don't even come close to offering an account of where things come from, and they don't even come close to offering an account of the history of humanity. Consider some of the alternatives with me. In ancient Babylon... One of the stories on offer was called Enuma Elish. Really, this story was mainly interested in telling you why Babylon was the greatest city and why the king of Babylon was the greatest king and why the god of Babylon, the local deity who was worshipped in Babylon, should be regarded as the champion among the gods. And so in this story, there's there's conflict among the pantheon, all the gods up in the heavens that they... Uh, believed in, and one of them, this god, the god of Babylon, Marduk, he actually triumphs over the others, and what he does is he takes his battle axe, and having slain his enemy, he splits this other goddess named Tiamat in half with the battle axe, and with one half of her, he builds the heavens, and with the other half of her, he builds the earth. Well, where did Tiamat come from? And are the gods really violent? And are the gods really just interested in exalting themselves? I mean, this ultimate, this doesn't go back far enough. It doesn't, doesn't go deep enough. It, and it doesn't explain. I think in a, in a creation account like that, that has to do with, with violence and one god defeating another, I think you've got, you know, Christian uh, or philosophers sometimes talk about the problem of evil. How do you account for evil if, the, if God is good? Well, I think we can do that. But if the, if the gods are evil, if the gods are violent... I think you've got a problem of good. How do you account for goodness? Egypt, the, the Egyptian stories. So the Babylonian stories, they're not complete enough. They don't go back, and back far enough, and they don't account for things like goodness. In Egypt, what we have are things called coffin spells, where, you know, Egypt, they're really interested in death, and they, 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 they have these elaborate rituals for entombing and embalming the dead. And in these tombs and on these coffins... They have these writings, so we're not even dealing with a coherent account that seeks... We're just piecing together things that they have inscribed on these archaeological remains. Well, in Egypt, I'm not, listen, I'm not even going to go through how they explain where the world came from. I'm just going to put it in generic terms and say that uh, for them, uh, one of the gods fathered the world. I'm just going to leave it at that, okay? And you can... Uh, if, you, if you want to read about it, you can go look at God's glory and salvation through judgment where some more explicit terms are used that I'm not going to go into here. It's, it's Honestly, it's disgusting the way that they describe where the world came from. It is, it's is, uh, it's not, I mean, I can't, I don't feel comfortable articulating it here in, in front of you, but it's, it's sexual and it's disgusting. It's gross. And um, <clears throat> if you don't believe me, just go look at, at what they say. Um, uh, so I don't think that that is worthy of the world that we live in. What the Egyptians, how the Egyptians account- accounted for the world in Greece, they started with Mother Earth Gaia, and supposedly for them Mother Earth. This is a this is a, an interesting word. Mother Earth parthenogenically. Parthenos means virgin, and then genics, eugenics, uh, genesis. You know, uh, as virgin birth basically. Uh, the Mother Earth gave birth by Parthenogenesis to Uranos, which would be something like father heaven. And then father heaven, Uranos, sky, heaven, and, and mother earth acted like a husband and a wife together, and they gave birth to Kronos, time. And again, we don't have an accounting for where did mother earth come from? And how is this Who's directing this process? How's this supposed to have happened? So these, these accounts, these stories are really not answering the big questions. There's another myth. These are all myth, mythical accounts of where the world came from. Here's, here's another myth. There was this infinitely dense particle that had no mass that began to expand so rapidly that it has to be regarded as an explosion or a bang, a big bang, and then everything just developed out of that it doesn't go far enough, it doesn't answer the questions. Where did the particle come from? And how did we get from amino acids and proteins to living things? And how did we get from living things to human consciousness, awareness? These myths are really not explaining the big questions. They're not answering the big questions. Genesis one is gonna answer the big questions for us. It's gonna answer them I think, in a way that allows you to have a satisfying, coherent worldview that that can hold together all of our life experience. And I submit to you that there is nothing comparable to Genesis and the Pentateuch in all of the world's uh, literature. Doesn't the bulletin look great? You'll notice on the front that we've got sort of a tagline, overarching Uh, title for this series on Genesis. God's world-shaping word. That's what happens in creation. God's word shapes the world. This is what's supposed to happen in our hearts. God's word is intended to shape our perception of the world. God's word, this book, The book of Genesis is supposed to be for us a world-defining word. We are supposed to understand who we are, what this place is, why we're here, where it came from, what's wrong with it, and how it's going to conclude all from this word. This is a world-shaping word. So as we begin Genesis this morning... Um, let me start by trying to set the book of Genesis in its own literary context, which is the first five books of Moses, which you can call the Pentateuch, you can call the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And what I want to do is I want to, I want to propose to you that the author of these books, Moses, was a literary genius, and that he intended for us to be able to... Um, People that, that study these things, the way that our brains work, they, they refer to chunking, the way, the way that we take big uh, amounts of information and we group it together and we chunk it. So as an analogy, if we wanted to chunk the last 20 years of NFL football, we could just say, dominance of the New England Patriots. You're welcome, John. Um, that was supposed to be a joke, you know, you guys can, yeah. So anyway, what, my point is, you summarize... And then, and then you have this overarching sort of tag for the whole uh, chunk of information. So what I want to do for you is offer you a way to chunk the Pentateuch, and it's chiastic, and I, I think that it was intended by the author. So G- the book of Genesis corresponds to the book of Deuteronomy in the way that Genesis is a, is a, a prologue, and Deuteronomy is an epilogue. And, and both of them, Genesis and Deuteronomy, are dealing largely with land, seed, and blessing. So in Genesis, God is going to create the land. And then he's going to talk, in this chapter, he's going to talk about um, fruit trees having seed according to their kind. And then he's going, to, he's going to make the man and woman, and he's going to command them. First thing he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. So land, seed, and then Genesis 1:28, God blessed them. So, land, seed, and blessing, that's Genesis largely. And then Deuteronomy also. We're talking, Moses is preparing the people to enter the land of Canaan, and he's giving them instructions about how they, they are to pass what he has taught them on to the coming generations. And if they will do that, if they will keep the covenant, they will enjoy God's blessing. So, just in broad terms, think ep, uh, prologue and epilogue, and land, seed, and blessing for Genesis and Deuteronomy. Um, and then you've got, Exodus, and what happens in the first half of Exodus is Israel comes out of Egypt. And then in the second half of Exodus, they are, they are in the process of building the tabernacle. Well, in the book of Numbers, which of course, it stands across from Exodus in this chiastic structure, at the beginning of the book, they dedicate the tabernacle, and then at the end of the book, they, they set out on the march and prepare to enter uh, the land of, of Canaan. So it's like coming out of Egypt, building the tabernacle, consecrating the tabernacle, and then making their way toward the land of promise. In the middle of the whole thing is the book of Leviticus. And here we've got a couple of points of application, don't we? This, because what stands at the center is what everything is about. And, and we've got there the presence of God in the tabernacle. We've got the sacrifices for sin that make it so that a holy God can dwell among a sinful people. And we've got worship. That's what's going on. And, and so the book is telling us with, with this, it's prologue, it's epilogue, and it's narratives about coming out of Egypt and building the tabernacle, consecrating the tabernacle, making their way to the promised land, Leviticus in the middle, everything is about the worship of God. And what what makes possible the worship of God is the sacrifice that God provides for sin. And those Old Testament Levitical sacrifices find their completion and fulfillment in the death of Christ on the cross. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking, I came in here wanting to know what it looked like to be a Christian, and this guy's talking about the first five books of Moses. Well, what it looks like to be a Christian is to understand that God made you and that you've rebelled against him. But because... He has provided sacrifice in the Old Covenant. It was through these Levitical rites. In the New Covenants, through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He's provided sacrifice that will pay the penalty for your sin and that will make it so that you can be reconciled to God. But you have to turn away from your rebellion and you have to place your hope in the sacrifice provided. That's what it looks like to be a Christian. And if you're visiting with us and you're not a Christian, we would love for you to know Jesus. And... Um, On the back of the bulletin, you'll notice there's a a list of elders and deacons here. On the back of the bulletin, any one of these guys would be thrilled to talk with you. And some of these guys are going to be standing up here at the front. I'm going to be standing up here at the front at the end of the service. If you want to come talk to us, there'll be people at the back doors. You can probably talk to the person sitting next to you. We'd all love to talk to you about what it looks like to follow Jesus. So there's a, a kind of quick summary of the Pentateuch for you. I hope that'll be useful to you. I hope you'll... I hope you will, if you, you know... Take notes on that, commit it to memory, and then you know what's in the Pentateuch. You know what the Pentateuch's about. The whole thing. There it is. Let's do the same thing for the book of Genesis. I wish I had a kind of structure for you, but I don't yet. Um, maybe there is one. I don't, if there is one, I have not yet discerned it. But I want to quickly, let me just quickly observe for you how Genesis starts and finishes. It starts with a brother committing a murder. Cain and Abel and it finishes with another brother forgiving his murderous brothers, Joseph and his, and his brothers, right? That's the story. You've got this fraternal, that, that word means brotherly, you've got this fraternal conflict that's going to run through the book. Cain is going to murder Abel, um, Ishmael is going to mock Isaac, Jacob is going to want to murder, I'm sorry, Esau is going to want to murder Jacob, and then Joseph's brothers, they sell him into slavery and tell, tell their father that he's dead, but he's not dead. He's not dead. It's like when they find him later, it's like he's, a, he's back from the dead, and he's in this line of descent that comes from Adam and Eve and, and, and goes all the way down to himself, and he has been exalted as the seed of Abraham, who is blessing all the nations through his, his supernatural ability to, to interpret Pharaoh's dreams and then administrate the kingdom. All the kingdoms of the world are coming to Joseph to buy bread. Joseph is a ruler who is anticipating the ruler who's going to bring about re- uh, reconciliation among, among brothers, among murderers and those offended by them and wronged by them. And, and through, that, through that prefiguring type that we're presented Uh, But in, in Joseph, we get an anticipation of what the Lord Jesus will do when he will renew the land and bless all the families of the earth and bring about reconciliation. The first 11 chapters, Genesis 1 through 11, we're going to start at creation, Genesis 1. We're going to get some stuff about the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2. You get the fall in Genesis 3, Cain and Abel in Genesis 4 a genealogy in Genesis 5, the flood in 6 through 9, some more genealogical type stuff in Genesis 10 and 11, and and by that point, we're to Abraham. And the two genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11, they both have 10 uh, generations in them. You go from Adam to Noah in Genesis 5, and then you go Noah's son Shem to Abraham in Genesis 11. So, Genesis 1 through 11 is creation to Abraham. And then you get Abraham's life in Genesis 12 through 25. And then you get Isaac and Jacob in Genesis 26 through 36. And then you get Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50. So you can, you can if you got creation to Abraham, Genesis 1 through 11, after that it's just Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph through the rest of, of the book. And this morning we're going to start thinking together about uh, Genesis 1. And my plan is to begin today looking at Genesis 1 and think about uh, how this chapter is structured and what God has done in creation. And then, Lord willing, next week we will look more closely at Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and, wh- and, and the way that, that uh, man and woman are presented and what they're supposed to do. And really what we're going to look at is the image in the temple. And so... Uh, Lord willing, we'll do that. That'll take us some into Genesis 2, and then the week after that, um, we'll think in particular about how he created them male and female, and we'll think about what it is that we are man and woman. So these three, these next three weeks will all be in Genesis 1 and 2, with a little bit into Genesis 3 with the he created them male and female, but mainly in, mainly in Genesis 1 and 2. So let's start... Now, thinking together about Genesis chapter 1. The first two verses introduce to us this chapter. And then in chapters 3, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verses uh, 3 through really the end of the chapter, you have the six days of creation. And then in the first three verses of chapter 2, you have the seventh day. Okay, so you've got kind of this summary statement of what God did in Genesis 1 and 2, and then the six days of creation, and then 2, 1 through 3 is all devoted to day 7. Let's look together at Genesis 1, 1 and 2. We read here, in the beginning, and it's, it's already fascinating. Uh, it, 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 it may not be as apparent in English as it is in Hebrew, but if you think about it, it's, it's not hard to to see beginning implies ending, beginning implies ending, and there are a number of texts in the Old Testament where where like beginning and ending, these two words, uh, rechit and Akirit in Hebrew, are are put side by side as like you know beginning and end. Okay, so let me just give you a couple of examples of this. You have it in Job chapter eight verse seven, where. Uh, One of Job's counselors says, though your beginning was small, your latter days, that's the same Hebrew word for ending or something like that, your latter days will be very great. Um, There's some other instances of it, but I just want to take you to one that I think is particularly significant, and that's Isaiah chapter 46 verse 10, where Isaiah speaks of the Lord as the one declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So just in, as in English, you know, we, we think of beginning and ending. We can think of those as a pair. You get that, the pairing of those concepts in the Hebrew Bible. And, and what I'm suggesting to you is that when a, a, a native speaker of Hebrew like Moses uses a word like reishit, bereshit, that's the first word of, of the Old Testament, it, it's going to evoke for people the concept of, okay, beginning, well, there's going to be an, in, an ending. And and here's what I think we can take from that. The creator God started with a purpose. He started with a purpose that he is going to accomplish. He's not just sitting around letting things happen. There's a purpose from the beginning that he's going to accomplish. That purpose will be unfolded across the rest of the Old Testament. So beginning implies ending. And then look at the next word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and in this account try as they might old testament scholars to get violence or sex into this account it's not there it's not there you can read through genesis 1 there is no conflict in the pantheon the god of the bible yahweh doesn't have to fight anybody he doesn't have to control the forces of chaos he doesn't have to defeat any enemies and I submit to you, sometimes people appeal to other texts in the Bible, like Psalm 74, Psalm 89, um, Isaiah 51, they'll appeal to these other texts and they'll say, well, that looks like it's talking about creation. And that looks like, no, no, let's go read it again. And what you'll find is the conflict there is, is usually the Red Sea. Yeah, God defeated his enemy at Egypt, at the Exodus. Yes, he did. But there's no conflict in creation. Not in Genesis 1, nowhere else in the Old Testament don't believe it. Turn your brain on, inspect the text, look for yourself. There's no conflict in the Bible. That brings up, I think, a significant point. Don't let some Old Testament scholar tell you that, that the Old Testament reflects ancient Near Eastern mythology. It, it, the Old Testament no more reflects ancient Near Eastern mythology then Denny Burke's teaching and writing and thinking reflects the agenda of the LGBTQ plus community, right? We're talking about two completely different worldviews. Now, Denny may address the same issues that that community is addressing. He may style his arguments in accord with their contentions to answer them. There, there may be all kinds of interaction between the two, but they're separate, and they're operating from different starting points and on different premises. It's, it's, that, it's a similar thing going on in, in the book of... G- yeah, Moses, is a, Moses. the book of Acts tells us, was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. So did he know the Egyptian mythology? Sure. Did he know Enuma Elish? Probably so. Was he aware of, of the, the Greco-Roman mythology? Well, he might have been a little bit earlier than them, but I, don't, I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't traffic in the Mediterranean between... Ancient Greece and, and, and Egypt where Moses was trained, so prop he could have been. Does that mean that he's reflecting their worldview in his writings? I, I really doubt it. I really doubt it. I think Moses was a, a strong enough thinker to distinguish between his worldview and alternative understandings of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want to read a quotation from Herman Bavink here that really gets at at God. Bavink writes of God. God is the real, the true being, the fullness of being, the sum total of all reality and perfection, the totality of being, from which all other being owes its existence. He is an immeasurable and unbounded ocean of being, the absolute being who alone has being in himself. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God of the Bible. And did you notice, did you notice that in all these other accounts, these other myths, myths of where things came from? Those who supposedly do the creation, they start with already existing matter to start creating, whereas in the Bible, you've got creation out of nothing. So the the gods of creation, Kenneth Matthews writes in his commentary on Genesis, the gods of creation, talking about the pagan gods, the the myths, were depicted primarily as reordering unruly primeval matter, not creating matter. That's what the God of the Bible does. He creates. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the earth does not result from some defeated God. And the heavens are not her half of her body. And they are not ruled by Baal or some other storm god like Zeus up in the cosmos. No. God is Lord of all. God made both the heavens and the earth. And then we're told... The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now from this, we're we're going to get a kind of cue as to what God is going to do in the days of creation, because we read there in verse 2 that the earth was without form and void, and, and what God is going to be presented doing in these six days is forming and then filling. And, and this really breaks down into the, into the two sets of three. And the two sets of three days, the first three days, what he's going to form, what he's going to do is form. And then in the second three days, he's going to fill what he has formed. And we'll, we'll come back and, and, and look more closely at the forming and the filling in just a second. But before, before we do that, I just want to say that, um, that there's a strong emphasis in this passage on the Word of God. Look at, look at the first words of verse 3, and God said, and that, that statement, and God said, is, is going to occur uh, 10 times in this, in, this, in this passage, exactly 10 times. The number 10 is a symbol of fullness. I think Moses is deploying literary artistry so that he has orchestrated his statements so that he has exactly 10 and no more instances of Vayomer Elohim, and God said. Now, the reason I wanted to go to the first part of verse three there, and God said, is because of what's at the end of verse two. The spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I want to distinguish here between what Moses was thinking, and what gets revealed in the progress of Revelation as we move across the Bible, and as we move through the ages, down from Moses to the coming of Jesus. Um, But, so, so if you say to me, okay, did Moses have a fully formed idea of the Trinity? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I don't think so. I think that Moses knew God, he speaks here of the Spirit of God. And he speaks of God's all-powerful Word. But it is later revealed, what John writes in John 1 that we read earlier in the passage, that the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. and, And through Him, all things were made. And then as Christian thinkers, so that later gets revealed. What I'm saying to you is, I don't think Moses understood that the word was going to become incarnate, that the word was the second person of the eternal trinity. Maybe he did, but I think Moses just had the one living and true God revealed to him. But as you, as you move across the Bible, it eventually becomes clear, and, and there are hints of it, like Psalm 33 that we read, by your word, O Lord, were the heavens made." there are hints of it, and then you're moving toward... The word became flesh. And then Christian thinkers start trying to put this together. How is it that we have one God who who exists as these three persons? And eventually what they conclude is that this word was eternally begotten of the Father. And that there never was a time when Jesus was not begotten of the Father. It's a mystery, it's a glorious reality, and it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to be human and have the opportunity to think about God, and I think it would be a great thing if there were to be a reading group spring up in this church, a group of people that maybe, say, let's say, wanted to read through um, Augustine on the Trinity. That book will make you a thinker. That book will, that book will open your mind to the history of Christian thought and, and to the, the mysteries of the way that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always been the one true and living God. So i just throw that out there. Maybe that'll happen. Maybe there's some people interested in making that happen. I don't know. Um, it's, it's a glorious thing. So you've got right here in Genesis 1, you've got God and the Spirit and the Word. Now, the days of creation, there's, there's a pattern here. That to each of these days, but the pattern is not going to be followed slavishly. The pattern is established, and then there are variations on the pattern. So it's going to start with what we see there in verse three and God said, and then the next step in the pattern is the let there be, and it was so, and it was good. But you're not going to have all those elements every time, but look at verse three here and God said, let there be light. And there was light. That kind of functions as as an and it was so statement. And then verse 4, and God saw that the light was good. So I think Moses is establishing the pattern for his readers, uh, for his audience. This is the way I'm going to present this. God spoke. He gave the command. It happened. And God saw that it was good. And then what you have next in the pattern, in, in the first three, you have these separations. So, so there in verse 4, God separated the light from the darkness. And, and I think what God is doing in particular is he's forming. He's, he's calling things into existence, and then he's forming what he is called out of the formless void. And then, um, and then he calls, verse 6, and God... Uh, I'm sorry, verse 5. God called the light day, so he names. And the darkness he called night. So God said... And then he gives the command, let there be, and it was so, and it was good, and then he calls, and then lastly, there at the end of verse uh, 5, there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. So that's the pattern, these four steps. And that pattern, it, not every element of the pattern is going to be present in each of the six days, but uh, it's established, and then there's, it's, it's almost like it's going to be theme and variation. So like in day two, for instance, there's no and it was good statement. Um, but day three, you're actually going to have God create two things and both of them are going to be called good. And so another significant uh, set of or another significant number is going to be upheld because there're going to be seven and it was good statements in this passage. So you got ten and God saids, and then you got seven and it was goods, even though he left one out of day two. He's going to repeat it in day three and I think there are then there's, then there's one everywhere else, and then there's the, the summarizing, and God saw everything that he was made, and behold, it was a very good statement at the end to make, to make the seven. I think Moses intended to have seven, and it was good statements. And why would he do this? Why would he have these sets of ten statements, these sets of seven statements? And then there's some other significant threes in, in the passage. I think what Moses is trying to do is cause the form of the literature... To reflect the perfect, the perfection of what he's describing, so he's trying to match his description to the beauty and the glory and the grandeur of creation, and the, and I think that's why he's structuring things the way that he does. Uh, also, incidentally, there are exactly seven Hebrew words in Genesis 1:1, bereshit bara Elohim et hashemayim ve et haaretz, seven words. And then there are 14 words, 7 times 2, in Genesis 1, verse 2. And then in 2, 1 through 3, there are exactly 35 Hebrew words, which is, of course, 7 times 5. And and in in those 35 Hebrew words, 3 times in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, you have reference to the seventh day. So threes are significant, sevens are significant, and tens are significant in this passage. There are... There are seven times God gives the command, let there be, and uh, seven times God says, and it was good. Um, you can also track seven of these, and it was so, statements, where, you know, God says, let there be, and, it, and, and there was kind of a thing, seven of those. So this passage is beautifully structured. Um, forming and filling, let's think about that for just, just a moment. Um, notice day one, what God has done is said, let there be light. And then he separated the light from the darkness. So he makes the light. And then um, day two, what he does is he says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And I don't know what the waters above the expanse are. Maybe they're clouds. I don't know. Um, And then So verse 7, God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. So he first forms light and separates it from darkness, and then he forms the expanse, and he names it heaven, and he separates these waters. And then the third day, verses 9 and following, he's going to do two things. First, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters... That were gathered together, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Second, verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed. So here we've got land and seed. And fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. So got, we've got two kinds of plant material. You've got vegetation that yields seed, and then you've got fruit trees that have the seed in the fruit, each according to its t- kind, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. So the forming of the first three days uh, consists of light and darkness, day one. um, And then the expanse, uh, day two. And then the dry land and then the vegetation in day three, the two things there. Day four... God has formed the light. Now he's going to fill the light. And so verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So he's formed light in day one, and now he's going to fill the light with these light-producing bodies in, in day four. So days one and four are going to match one another. Now, if you say to me, well, wait a minute. We had, we had land in, in day three there, but we got no sun for the day to re- for the for the land to uh, revolve around until day 4 and we got light in day 1 but we got no sun until the- you're doing it wrong you're asking questions that Moses is not trying to answer you're you're doing what people do to the Harry Potter novels when they say you know Harry didn't have to break into Snape's office all he had to do was say Osseo gillyweed or whatever it is he's trying to get out of of, of you're doing it wrong. You're breaking the rules of the story. Just accept what the author is telling you and work within the constraints of the story. If you, try to, if you try to do Genesis that way, you're not reading sympathetically. You're not reading in accordance with what Moses intends for you to learn from the passage. You're being a rebel. You're being a rebel, and you're rejecting what the Bible reveals. So don't, just don't do that. It's don't do that with novels, and don't do that with the Bible. It's a bad way to read. You're not going to enjoy any novels if you do that with the novels. I mean, these people are so unhappy that read that way. Just look at their... Lo- I'm, I should... Sorry. So he's formed light, then he fills. Look, look at verse 20 and following. This is the fifth day. Uh, uh, day two, he, he, made, he separated the waters above from the waters below, so he made heavens, Now, day five, verse 20, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So he fills the waters with the water creatures and then he fills the expanse with the air creatures. Verse 21, so God created the great sea creatures. This is an interesting Hebrew word, taninim. Some places in the Bible, it's rendered dragons. That's a great thing. God, what this is telling you is... God is in control of all the scary things in the world. God is in control of all the great beasts. God made those things. They're they're nothing for you to fear. God made them. They're nothing for you to fear if you fear God. God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then verse 22 is amazing. Verse 22 is glorious. Verse 22, and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. We're going to come, we're going to see a very similar statement down in verse 28 and we'll come back and think more about it there. What God is doing, why he would do this. Here we continue. There was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. So day two, formation of the heaven and the waters below. Day five, filling of the heavens with the birds and filling of the waters with the sea creatures. Now day six, uh, which corresponds to day three. There were two, two acts of creation on day three, right? The uh, formation of the dry ground and then the creation of vegetation. Now what we're going to get is the, the, the living creatures and the vegetation is going to be given to all of them to eat. You're going to get the living creatures and the people. And then they're, going to be, they're all going to be given the vegetation to eat. So day six corresponds to day three. Verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And again, you know, I know we're going to read in chapter two another, another kind of angle on this. If you try to make these accounts contradictory, you're doing it wrong. You're, there were smart people around Moses, who could have said to him, if it, was a, if it was a contradictory account, hey, Moses, these two things don't line up. And Moses was no dummy. He knows what he's doing. So don't conclude, oh, this is such a contradictory past. No, think to yourself, Moses is a smart guy. What's he trying to tell me? Why is he presenting it this way? Verse 25, God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said. Now you'll notice that in all these patterns, we haven't had anything like the next words of verse 26. Let us make man in our image. So this is a totally uh, disruptive way of putting it. And Moses is disrupting his normal way of talking to signal to his audience how significant this is. And you notice how, for the first time in the passage, God is speaking in the plural, and then he's going to make man in our image. And look at, let me just keep reading here. Well, let me skip you to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so God starts talking in the first person plural, and then he creates a plurality that consists of complementary genders, male and female. And, and again, I don't think that Moses had a Nicene or, you know, Chalcedonian understanding of, of the Trinity, but it's very interesting that when God to, goes to create man in his own image, he speaks in the plural, and then he creates male and female. Plurality. It's, it's, it's very interesting. It fits perfectly with what will later be revealed. I skipped over some statements in verse 26. Look at what God says there. God says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping. We'll think more about this, Lord willing, next week together. Um, And then we'll think more about created male and female, verse 27, the week after that. Look at verse 28. God blessed them. You know, next week, I'm going to read to you some statements from this ancient account called Atrahasis. It's about this guy that it's one of these ancient flood stories. And um, in those accounts, the reason that god, the gods made uh, people was because they wanted slave labor. That's not why the gods... The, the gods were, they, they were worn out by their tasks, and so they wanted some slaves, so they made people. That's kind of the way we would think about being a god, isn't it? That's, that's, that's exactly what the psalmist says when, when the Lord indicts people and he says, You thought I was just like you. That's the way we think. If I was a God, I would make people to serve me. That's the way sinners think. That's not the way God does it. And then in those accounts, you know, the reason, the reason God in Atrahasis, the reason God sends the flood to destroy people, the gods do. It's not just one God. Well, they had already tried plague, and that didn't work. And then they tried war, and that didn't work. So, so the reason they're doing this is because the people are making too much noise. They're annoying. They want to be done with these people. They're they're wicked, the gods are. So is Zeus. You thought that I was just like you, the Lord says in the Psalms. Not in the Bible. This, This verse is shocking, I think, every time I encountered it. God makes people, and he's happy about it. He's pleased. God blessed them. God loves you. God is glad he made you. God wants to bless you. God blessed them. And he wants more people. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Um, I was reading an essay on Augustine's understanding of creation and... um, This author analyzing Augustine's thought, this is what he, Augustine, I should say, whatever. Um, This is what he says. He says, God is being itself. This is like what Bavink said earlier. And then he says, creatures have what God is. Creatures have being by participation, by sharing in God's being. Not in the sense that God is divided and creatures are a part of God, but in the sense that God makes creatures to be like Him in some way. The more a creature is like God, the more it participates in Him and the closer it is to Him. Rational creatures participate most in God. They are an image of God in their rational souls, even if disfigured by sin. And they vary in likeness to God depending on love. In the world, creatures have being in different degrees. And the more creatures there are, the more good there is. That's why God is blessing them and saying, be fruitful and multiply, particularly to the image bearers, because they reflect who he is. And the more reflectors of who he is there are, the better, the more God's glory shines. The reason he wants them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth is because he wants it so that those who who, who represent his presence, his authority, his his character, he wants them everywhere. He wants the world full of his image and likeness. And he grants them dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every, every living thing that moves on the earth. And then skipping down to, in verse 30, he gives them the vegetation to eat, and it was so. Verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let me offer you some applications in response to this passage. Um, Application number one is just really straightforward. Worship God. Worship God. And and we, we need to take thoughts captive. We need to take thoughts that are unworthy of the God of the Bible captive in our thinking. And my, Peter Gentry was here a couple of weeks ago. I've heard him say on no, a number of occasions, there's really only one doctrine in the Old Testament, the doctrine of creation. Everything starts from creation. If God is your maker, so much follows out of that. If God made everything that is, the, the, the ramifications and implications of that are almost inexhaustible. Don't think unworthy thoughts of God. Worship him. Take your thoughts captive to the knowledge of God in Christ. And then related to that, make sure your worldview has satisfying answers to the big questions. So if you're here and you're an unbeliever, you don't, you don't believe in the God of the Bible, you don't trust in Jesus, you don't identify as a Christian, I would just challenge you, how do we get life? And, and why do you regard humans as bearing dignity? I mean, we think humans are dignified because they're made in the image and likeness of God. Why do you think humans are dignified? I think you think humans are dignified because you live in a culture that's been massively influenced by Christianity. And if you didn't live in a, in a culture where Christian ideas had been pervasive, I think it's very likely that you would think, well, slavery's okay, and... If I want to slaughter a bunch of people because I don't like their race, that's okay. Look at history. That's what they did. Why do you think people have dignity? Where did life come from? Where did that particle come from? Third, so worship God. Have a satisfying worldview. Number three, love the Bible. What a gift to have the Bible. We... We didn't constrain God to give this to us. We didn't somehow compel him to say, here I want you to know me. I want you to see the glory of what I did when I made the world. What a gift we have in the scriptures. And then then as as a, as a, a fourth application, I just want to offer to you Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. For his steadfast love endures forever. You notice we had steadfast love back there in Psalm 33. When we had in verse 5. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. It's like. Psalm 33 and Psalm 136 are saying, you want to know what prompted God to create the world? Steadfast love. Chesed prompted him to make the world. Verse 4 of Psalm 136. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then at the end of the passage, he concludes as he began. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray together. Father, we want to give you thanks. We want to rejoice in you. Lord, we want to be human, which is to say, we want to be those who worship you, those who know you, those who walk with you, those who think thoughts about you that are worthy of you. Lord, we can't do this on our own. We, we couldn't cause ourselves to be born. We didn't cause ourselves to be born again. And we can't transform ourselves into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And so we simply bring ourselves and say, do the work in us that you did in the formless void. Form us, Lord, and fill us. Make us pleasing to yourself. You made us, you've blessed us, help us, we pray. Help us to worship you, to know you, to thank you, to rejoice in you, to the end of our days, that we might know you forever, and we pray it in Christ's name, amen.